morning, friends. Good to be back with you again as I shared and as you probably knew already, I was at uh, our, our Sugar Grove campus and uh, Pastor Tim was here. <coughs> we met on Monday for our uh, campus pastors meeting and he had uh, just very, very good things to say about his time here. He was thankful for his, for his visit. Uh, regarding Village Fest and the weather, I don't know what your motto is regarding the weather, but here's my motto. Whether it's cold or whether it's hot, we're going to have weather, whether or not. So I think we just grin and bear it, whatever it is. No charge for that. Uh, so this, like this is it. This, this is the last sermon in the series. Crazy, right? It's like it just kind of sort of started. Or maybe you're thinking, no, it hasn't just sort of. I, I'm so thankful that this is, I know that's Zach. Zach is so thankful that this is the last. <sighs> Let me pray. Please join me as I go before the throne on our behalf. Father, it's good it's a good thing to be here with my brothers and sisters. Our elder brother Jesus at your right hand, your spirit empowering us, dwelling within us, a down payment for what's to come. In light of all that, Father, we gather in your name for your name's sake. Please teach us, uh, give us the grace of teachable hearts. And Lord, as we uh, wrap up this sermon series, may there, may there be a takeaway or two that leaves with us, that doesn't stay in this building, but that leaves with us and gets in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you, have you ever felt invisible? I'm not talking about... <clears throat> Growing up and playing, can't see me, can't see me. I'm not, I'm talking about like, have you ever felt invisible? <clears throat> have you ever felt that nobody really sees you? That nobody really knows you? Maybe in your workplace? School, youth group, family, neighborhood, church. There's a difference between feeling invisible in a moment and experiencing like invisibility is who I am. It's what I do. It's how I roll. It's just the way life is for me. That's my perception. The disciples we're going to walk through ever so quickly today could fall under that banner. And I've, I've, I've titled today's sermon, James Thaddeus Simon, The Invisible Disciples. And hopefully that will, that will become clear in a minute. But let me encourage you if you feel or if you wrestle with invisibility. 
Invisibility does not mean that you are expendable to God. Invisibility does not mean that you are unimportant to God. And invisibility does not mean that you are unseen by God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story and God and Hagar. Hagar was uh, uh, Abraham, well actually Sarah's servant and and Abraham took matters into his own hands. The, the baby thing wasn't happening. So, had Ishmael through Hagar. Sarah was having none of that. And out they went. She kicked him out. Actually, she told Abraham. And Abraham, no backbone at that time, said, you got to go out into the wilderness. But God saw and when God met Hagar and provided for her and Ishmael's needs, she declared that place, this place, is the God who sees. Remember a couple of weeks ago the, the, the sermon with Nathaniel? Nathaniel, before, before Philip even approached you, I saw you under the fig tree. So let me encourage you. In God's economy, there are no invisible people. Invisible people don't exist in God's economy because you matter to God. You can see in the disciple groupings, we're in that uh, third section. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Judas, son of James, Thaddeus. So I, wanna, I want you to see that. We're talking about the same person there. I'm going to refer to him as Thaddeus. And of course, Judas Iscariot happened last week. So this is it. This is the final grouping of, of the disciples. The gospel narratives, and one of the reasons I call them the invisible disciples, the gospel narratives are almost silent about these final three. Apart from the disciple listings, there's next to nothing, almost nothing said about them. In fact, I submit to you, if there is a distinguishing feature about Thaddeus and James and Simon, it is their invisibility. If something distinguishes them, it is that. So I want to walk through these three with you and then kind of try and tie a bow on this sermon series. First, James, the son of Alphaeus, also referred to as James the Less. How would you like that moniker? Or James the Younger. He is always named first in the final disciple grouping, possibly suggesting a place of prominence with those three. And all Scripture tells us about him is A, his name, and B, who his mother and brother were. And that's it. In Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 37, Jesus let out, so this is, this is at the tail end of Mark's gospel. <clears throat> this is Jesus breathing his last on the cross. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he declared, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and here we go, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joses, his brother. Apart from that little snippet and the four places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts with the disciple listings, that's it. That's all we know about James, son of Alphaeus, James the less, James the younger. Moving on. Simon, Simon the zealot. The only information we have regarding Simon are the four disciple listings. Like, how are you supposed to craft a sermon around that? Right? But I'm doing it. There are a couple of, so be careful here. There are a couple of options regarding, so uh, often zealot or zelotes is ascribed or associated with this particular Simon. It's almost always thought that Simon was part of the Jewish sect, the Zealots. Uh, they were having none of the Roman occupation. They were doing everything they could to overthrow that uh, in ways that we can associate with. Think guerrilla warfare. So that's what they were about. It was a tight-knit group, and they were serious, and they were fanatics. So that's one option regarding the word zealot or zelotes. Here's a second option that is actually less known. Simon may have been merely zealous, more a character quality than a political affiliation. More about his enthusiasm for the traditions of his predecessors, eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of the law. Both of those options are viable. The third, <clears throat> Thaddeus, uh, Judas, also referred to as Judas, son of James, and it's interesting. In John's gospel, it's as if John goes out of the way when he names him. He names him Judas, comma, not Iscariot. Like, don't, don't get confused. I'm not talking about the betrayer. And isn't it interesting, and I'm sure Pastor Tim mentioned it last week, whenever Judas is mentioned, what word is always mentioned with him? Betrayer. The betrayer. So John is careful. This is Judas, not Iscariot. Other than the disciple listings, the only other information we have about Thaddeus is found in a question that he asks of Jesus in John 14. So this is three paragraphs worth, um, but I, I just think it's all fruitful to give you the context of Judas, not Iscariot's question. John 14, I'm beginning at verse 15. So if you're not familiar, this is upper room stuff. These are the words of a dying man, right? So this is super, in, in terms of us as Christians, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, supremely important stuff. Final words, the words of a dying man kind of a thing. This is his disciples. Uh, by this time, Judas Iscariot has left the scene. 
If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world, and this is what Judas, not Iscariot, or Thaddeus picks up on. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Verse 22, this is Thaddeus or Judas, not Iscariot. Here's his question. He said to him, so, so, so Lord, how is it? Like, I don't get it. You're going to reveal yourself to us, but not the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. It's as if in response to Judas's question, Jesus' reply is something like this. Judas, you're not quite picking up what I'm putting down. You're not quite understanding me. So let me see, Judas, if I can say it in another way. Judas, my father and I will make our home with anyone who loves me, with anyone who has my commands and obeys them. This is not... Uh, several Sundays ago, I made this comment. I said, Jesus is the most inclusive ex exclusivist who ever lived. Whosoever, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that's whosoever, right? So it's as if Jesus is kind of parroting that or repeating that back to Thaddeus. Thaddeus, whoever loves me, not just you, but whoever loves me, my father and I will come and make our home with them. So you're not quite getting what I'm saying. And somewhere along the way, Thaddeus, you have missed some of who I actually am, my mission and my work. So as in the case of Philip and Thomas, who are recorded as previously asking questions and not getting it quite right about Jesus... In John's Gospel, it seems Thaddeus doesn't quite grasp the true identity of Jesus nor his mission. Aren't you, isn't there something that like resonates with you regarding these guys? They're, they're not painted, are they? as these incredibly godly saints. They have their faults, they have their failures, they have their foibles, they have faith yet imperfect. 
I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like me. Actually, I do know about you. And that sounds a lot like you. Is that fair? Right? So, let me, let me segue from those three and let me talk about all 11. And then at the end, because I'm taking out Judas Iscariot, and then at the end, I'm going to add somebody. There is, there's an important sense where we can say that. No matter the volume of words each disciple received in the Bible or the relative importance ascribed to each in the biblical text, and here it is. If there is a legacy of the apostles, and there is, it's the church. All the qualifiers. Jesus initiated the church. He's the head of the church. I get it. All the qualifiers. The church is spirit-empowered, yes. But purely from an apostle's perspective, purely from a human perspective, if, and let these words sink in, if there is a legacy left to us for 2,000 years by these 11, and I'm going to add another, it's the church, man. You think about that. You think about the power of that. For two, again, all the qualifiers I get. Do you understand that of all the institutions, and I'll use that word, that of all the institutions that have ever been or are or ever will be, there is only one institution that when everything is said and done, what was that foreshadowing? The return of Jesus? When everything is said and done, there's only one institution that will remain. And it's the church. You let that sink in. Do we, in light of that, do we give the church mere lip service? Something we do? Once, once a week? Is that our... Is that how small our conception of this thing called the church is? I hope not. I hope not. So the legacy of the apostles is the church. And so I would like to suggest five characteristics that they all shared. Number one, they all personally traveled with Jesus when he walked the earth. So they were privy to his teachings, miracles, ministry, the, the intimate details of his day-in, day-out life. They knew what they were talking about, like post-Pentecost. They had lived three, three and a half years with Jesus. They knew who he was, insight from the Holy Spirit, and all that. Think about the Gospels. These guys are tattling on themselves, right? One of the uh, one of the many, many, many proofs for me, that I don't think there's one thing that will seal the deal for anything, for anybody regarding, is this the word of God or isn't it? But I think you bring a lot of things to bear, and over time, this begins to look and act and taste and smell like the word of God. And one of those things for me is, if I was writing a gospel like Matthew, I wouldn't have told in that gospel the stupid stuff that I did. 
But there it is, in living color. Same thing with John. Right? I got it, I got it. I don't got it. I would, I would have just included all the I got it's in there. I wouldn't have included any of the I don't got it's in there. Number two, they were all witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Another proof for the validity of this book and Christianity. So you're going so to tell me that these 11 guys, later Matthias, and then we're going to throw in Paul, you're going to tell me that these, well, let's say 13 guys, they, they kept the secret that no, Jesus didn't really die from the dead. We actually stole and hid his body, and they're going to take that to the grave. Many of them martyred. All of them suffered. That makes zero sense to me. Like zero sense, number one. Number two, there is no way on God's green earth that 13 dudes can keep a secret that long. It's not happening, right? It's just not. Is that reasonable? It's not reasonable. You start piling that stuff on, and you've, you've got a decision to make. And there's no gray area. Either Jesus is who he claimed he was, and this is the Word of God, and Christianity is the only thing out there, or it's not. There is no wiggle room. This is one of those areas, dudes and dudettes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, saints. This is one of those areas. It is black and white. It is either or. There's nothing in between. None of that's in the sermon or my notes or anything like that, but ooh, that just jazzes me up. Third, they all witnessed Jesus' ascension, his going up. I'm, I'm of the conviction that we don't give that the play it deserves in the church. We don't give Jesus' ascension, his, dare I say it, bodily ascension, his, dare I say it, bodily seated at the right hand of the throne, interceding for us as our, that doesn't get the play it should. The incarnation gets play, it should. The resurrection gets play. It should. Uh, the crucifixion gets play. It should. But the ascension and the high priestliness of, I don't think that gets the play. It should in the church. Fourth, they all were willing to suffer for the belief in the risen, ascended Jesus. Check out what Luke writes in Luke 18. You'll see it on the screen. Then Peter said, look, speaking to Jesus, we have left what we had and followed you. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters. Oh, by the way, did I, have I said yet that the cross, the, the Jesus following life is a cross following life, is a cruciform life? I believe I've said that a number of times, right? Why? Because it is. The way in the here and now, in this time between times, the time of Jesus' first coming, the time of Jesus' return, in this time between times, church, following Jesus is cross-shaped. He had the integrity to tell us that while he walked the earth. 
parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more. This is glorious. At this time or in this life and the life to come and eternal life in the age to come. Jesus is saying like, this is no comparison. Yes, it will cost you. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a privilege to follow me. There's like, it's not a cost. In light of everything that you will... As I look out on this, this congregation, I can say with, with great sincerity of heart, you are my family. But I didn't say it first. Jesus did. You are my family. We are family. Let that sink in. And now I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. Five. They all had a durable, if imperfect, faith. John chapter 6, let me set it up for you. Jesus has just thrown a tough, tough teaching out there. He basically said, unless you're all in, you're not in at all. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. If you're not all in, you're not in at all. And so, uh, John 6, beginning at verse 66, don't, don't read anything into John 6, 6, 6 here. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. He's not talking about the 12 here. He's talking about the crowd. The crowd scooted. Why? This is too tough, man. We're here for the loaves and fishes. We're here for the magic show. Cost? Really? I don't think so. See ya. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Now be careful here. Jesus isn't poo-pooing himself. He's not like, oh my gosh, he, I'm freaking out here. Are you guys going to? That's not what. It was a pointed question to them. For the twelve, it was decision time. Make your choice. Are you in or are you out? Simon Peter answered, love this, Lord. Like, you're the only option. To whom will we go? Where are we going to go? There is, Lord, we've made a choice. Again, however imperfect their faith was, right? Lord, we're in. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What a declaration. Now, Peter and the, the, the rest, excepting Judas, they didn't know all that that would entail. How could they? Eventually, more and more and more, they did the best with what they had at the time, with their faith at the time. So if I could pull all of that together and weave in some of the elements that I use to describe the various disciples in previous sermons, it might sound something like this. The disciples were 
conflicted yet faithful begats, who at times were zealous without knowledge. I got it, I don't got it, truth in love, just as surprised that Jesus chose them as you and I are, yet at times invisible followers of Jesus. I tell you, I can relate to a lot of what's in there. Maybe, just maybe, in varying degrees, the disciples were really no different from us. I want to close um, with a few thoughts. You'll see it on the screen. So what transformed these guys into basically, you know, later on in Acts, the lost world is saying about the disciples, they have turned the world upside down. That wasn't said by Christians or people of the way. It wasn't said. It was said by unbelievers about the disciples. They've turned the world upside down. How did that happen? The disciples were all transformed by the person of Jesus. Let me, let me clarify something here. This book is not primarily a book about doctrines and propositions. Don't misunderstand what I love systematic theology. The doctrines and the propositions are embedded in this book. This book is primarily a story. It's an increasing revelation of who God is and what He's about and our fit and our place in comparison to who He is. So never substitute doctrines about Jesus for Jesus Himself. It's Jesus Himself and then doctrines. So they were all transformed by the person of Jesus. Second, the power of Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit. Third, the story of Jesus in the Scripture. And fourth, often overlooked, the community of Jesus, His body, the church. Those four pieces, elements, however you want to phrase them, whatever you want to call them, all those were used by God to transform the disciples. And that transformation process is the same transformation process that we have access to. All of that is available to you. Every bit of it. All of it. There's one more disciple that I didn't mention in this series or wasn't part of the series. So he may come across as invisible. But he's not. And that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul described himself as a legit apostle, but one like born out of due time, like not normal, not ordinary kind of an apostle. But he was an apostle. And I think if, if there was one contribution Paul would make to this series, if he were only allowed to contribute a bite-sized tweet summing up his experience following 
the reality of his following Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus, a tweet which could summarize the other disciples' experiences as well, and also could summarize our experience following the reality of our following the risen and ascended Jesus. Paul's tweet might be this, Philippians 1.21, For me, to live is Christ. That's it. If you wanted to sum up the past however many weeks, this series in a tweet, there it is. For you and for me to live. It's Jesus, yes? It's all about Jesus. And you may think, but if it's all about Jesus, I lose myself. No, you don't lose yourself. It is in following Jesus. It is in making life all about Him and His Lordship. It's in the process of that that you actually find yourself. That you actually find your true self, your real humanity, your true dignity. So I close this sermon series with, with Paul's words. For me, for you, for I, for us. To live, it's Jesus. Let's pray.